0: Good evening. Let's cultivate our motivation. And let's begin by remembering how powerful our speech can be, how it can create harmony, how it can create disharmony, and how. What we say comes, originates in our mind. So to improve our speech, we have to observe our mind. And what kind of attitudes are there? What kind of emotions are there? What kind of intentions are there? So if we have certain habits of speech, it's good to do some research on them. <clears throat> and see are there certain... sorry <clears throat> are there certain um, situations that we fall into certain habits of speech with? Are there particular people that we have certain habitual? kinds of speech with. And then when we find the patterns that will help us very much to investigate why, what is the intention behind those habit patterns of speech. And then to clean up our speech, generate positive motivations. And steer our speech in a way that brings truth and harmony. So, this is important because. The chief ways that Buddhas guide and benefit sentient beings is through their speech, through teaching the Dharma, through showing sentient beings the path out of dukkha. So to create the causes for a Buddha's speech, we not only have to know the Dharma, but to really have compassionate intentions and to learn how, when, where, in what way to speak about certain topics and when not to speak about certain topics. So, with the intention to benefit sentient beings, as the Buddhas do, and that's cultivate bodhicitta and have a strong determination to observe our speech. Okay, so we were uh, in the chapter on karma, the universe, and evolution. And if you remember, we were in the middle of um, a section talking about the relationship between karma and um, the external world or between the mind and the external world. Okay, so I want to review that a little bit, um, starting on the bottom, page 45, how Vasubandhu spoke from the the perspective of the Vavasaka school, and then going into the Sutrayana context and then the Vajrayana context, okay? Now, if you remember the last time we were talking about this, People had all sorts of wonderful questions. How exactly does this work? Please go into more depth about this and that. And I had said at the beginning of the chapter that these were His Holiness's uh, current thoughts about some of these things, and that he says repeatedly in this chapter, this needs more research. So if His Holiness did not explain it here, because it's not perfectly clear, because he says only people with very deep realizations and concentration will know about, you know, we're getting into the section about the winds, and we'll know about those. So if he doesn't write about them, please don't expect me to know about it, okay? I have the same questions as you do. So uh, you can jot your questions down and put them in a file, and when somebody comes along who is capable of answering them, then you ask them. Okay? Or maybe you can discuss it with each other, because I think a lot of these ideas that His Holiness puts forth here are. uh, are put forth for us to think about. And I know for me, you know, as I read it, I think about this and this and that, you know. And, and you know, you, you throw around different ideas in your own mind about how these things link up. Uh, but it's not like, uh, you know, this is all written in some textbook encyclopedia and we can all look it up because, uh, the Buddha happened to write it all down because he's the only one who understands it, okay? If he's the only one who understands it, then why do we think we will understand it even if he explains it to us? <laughs> okay, so, you know, keep, keep these things as as points to, to play within your mind, to discuss with each other, and... Uh, and try and be satisfied with that. Or else. (laughs) Okay. So here's from the, the section, the mind and the external world. So although Vasubandhu stated in the treasure of knowledge, the manifold world arises from karma he and other Abhidharma authors did not detail the exact process through which this occurs. Gee, I wish he had. It would have made my life a lot easier. Okay? So maybe uh, you can gain single point of concentration and go talk to Vasubandhu and uh, ask him about this since he didn't explain it. Okay, but the broad concept of what he said about the manifest world arises from karma. The broad concept is that through the interdependence of material substances and sentient beings' karma, in other words, sentient beings' actions, and also the seeds and latencies of those actions that are on the mindstream, The world evolved in such a way that it could support the various life forms that live in it. So the important point here is that there's an interplay between the mind and the karma and the physical world and how the physical world evolves and what happens in it. So that already is uh, quite a profound thing exactly how it works. There are a few things that will come here, but um, there are a few things that will come here, and that's it, okay? So in the Sutrayana context, Chandakirti noted in his supplement, from the mind the world of sentience arises. So too, from the mind the diverse habitats of beings arise. So, of course, from the mind, sentient beings arise, and the mind is what makes sentient beings sentient. Okay? Um, But also from the mind, the diverse habitats arise. So, you know, if you think about uh, the mind creating the karma, and, you know, when we studied karma, how there's the environmental effect of the karma, and that means that... We're born in certain situations Due to the kinds of actions we've done It does not mean that our karma goes in there and makes things happen in the environment that affect us Okay, that's not what that means. It just means that we get born in different kinds of, of environments according to our actions and if you go back to volume two and look at, I think there's a chart in there about the ten non-virtues and the environmental result. You can see, oh yeah, that action here leading to that result there. That makes sense. Yeah, like, um, yeah, what I think when uh, the one when you lie is, that uh, you know the rivers dry up, everything dries up, doesn't function, well, yeah, when you lie, that's what you're making happen. Yeah, harsh speech, you're born into a place where there's lots of rocks and thorns. Okay. So that kind of thing, you can see there, there's some link in that, yeah. Now exactly how that works that is for you to discover in your meditation okay <laughs> okay so so too from the mind the diverse habitats of beings arise the chittamatra school understands this literally and developed a philosophical system that denies the existence of external objects and instead asserts that both the perceiving consciousness and the perceived object arise from the same latency on the foundational consciousness. Okay, so this is the, the Chita Madra scriptural proponent, and they're the ones who assert a mind basis of all, or what we call the foundation consciousness. And that is a uh, an another consciousness. There's the sixth one, six usual ones. Then there's an afflictive consciousness. And then there's this one, the foundation consciousness. And on it is, it's the storehouse for all the karmic seeds and all the latencies for all different other kinds of things. Okay. So seeds and latencies don't always uh, refer to karma. Sometimes they're the seeds and latencies of afflictions, okay? And also when you uh, study the Chita Mantra system, uh, there's all sorts of other uh, latencies that they have too. So, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of a broad thing. But their philosophy is that when we, we look at the clock, okay, the visual consciousness that's seeing the clock Yeah, arises from a latency on the mind, and so does the clock that that consciousness is perceiving. Okay, usually the other Buddhist schools say there's an observed object there, then there's a sense faculty, in this case, maybe your eye, and then there's your consciousness, and by the object contacting the sense faculty, then the consciousness perceives the object so there's a um, uh, a cause and effect relationship there between the object causing the consciousness okay with between the chitta madras, yeah the object and the consciousness arise from the same seed the same latency so there's not that causal conscious causal relationship. Okay. But then when you ask the Chita Madrans, well then how come w- when our eyes are open we can see <laughs> something and when our eyes are closed they can't. If it's only the the latencies, then you know they say, well you still need that as some kind of cooperative condition or something. Yeah, they find some way to answer it. But it's an interesting kind of theory, you know, what, the, what they do. And it, um, yeah, it's interesting to think about that, that my, my mind and the object that I'm perceiving arise from that same latency. So that means the object is not out there independent of the mind as something external waiting for me to come along and perceive it. Yeah, so then you kind of go, whoa, then what is it, okay? So the Majima, Majumaka school disagrees with that, okay? Although it refutes an objectively existent world out there that is unrelated to sentient beings' minds, okay? So it's like the Chi mantra in that respect. There's no objective external world out there that's not related to our minds. But, the Madhyamika say, there are external objects. Okay? Because there are objects that we share, that we all perceive. So, they're not out there unrelated to the mind, they are related to the mind, but not in the same way that the Chita say, objects are related to the mind. Yeah, Madhyamaka, says that they're related to the mind in the sense that the mind conceives and designates them with a name. So the relationship's very different than than the Chitamantra view. Okay. So um, it asserts external objects, saying that sentient beings' intentions create karma which influences their resulting body-mind complex and their external habitat. So we create actions. They will cause us to take one kind of rebirth or another. And according to the realm in which we're born, we have certain sense faculties. And our sense faculties influence how we uh, see different things. So there, that's how the karma will influence how we perceive, but it's through creating the body with certain kind of sense faculties. I remember as a kid seeing one movie, one documentary in school, where they, they said this is, because uh, flies' eyes are very, they have, I don't know, do you know how to describe them? Many different kind of, lenses and things like that, you know. It's not just like us. So when a fly looks at something, what they perceive is completely different than what we perceive because we just have, you know, two eyeballs and two lenses and and that's it. But the fly sees something entirely different. And the fly will also um, relate to objects very different. I had an interesting experience with this when I lived in Dharamsala. At one point, right above the town of McLeod Ganj, there's a bunch of um, homes where the you know mud and 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 brick homes where the Tibetans live. And so uh, I was living in one of those homes for a while because the people away uh, who own the home were away. And there was no plumbing, so, you know, when you have to do your business, you walk across into the field, you know, and you do your business and come back. And what I discovered is every day, you know, I could go to the same place because it was clean the next day because I did my business and then the flies came and they saw food, and they say, delicious food. They ate the whole thing up, so the next morning, very beautiful, untouched place to do my business again. Yeah, so it really, I was going, my goodness, you know, how I perceive poo, and how flies perceive poo, is, it really depends on your karma. You know, whether you see it as something to throw away or something to to ingest, okay? So there's many, many, many things like that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, just even in the human realm, how one situation people can see in totally different ways. And that's often due to the, the karma. The, you know the karmic appearance to them okay then in Vajrayana the Samaja Tantra speaks about the inseparability of the subtlest mind and the subtlest wind so the subtlest mind is not the gross wind that blows leaves okay and blows trees down and you know is cold in the winter <laughs> Um, uh, and it's also not the subtle energy in the body, like the chi, you know, that they talk about in Chinese medicine, you know, or the winds in Tibetan medicine. Okay, that's the subtler energy, but it's not, or the subtler wind, but it's not the subtlest. Okay, so the subtlest wind is an extremely subtle wind or energy that is inseparable from the subtlest mind. So the wind is the aspect of movement, the mind is the aspect of cognizance, or knowing something. So this subtlest mind wind is not within the range of what scientific instruments can measure. Yeah, I don't even know if scientific instruments can measure the subtle winds or chi in the body. Does anybody know? They can't? Yeah, so if they can't measure that, then that's surely the subtlest level of wind scientific uh, instruments can't, can't measure. Okay. In general, yeah, the subtlest mind wind is dormant throughout the lives of ordinary beings and becomes manifest only at the time of death, or as a result of yogic practices that involve absorbing the coarser levels of wind and mind. So, in His Holiness's teachings, the last two days, he's talked about this. You know, the absorption process, and he mentioned in particular the uh, the white vision, um, the red yeah, red appearance, the black um, attainment? that black narrativement, yeah. I usually do just white, red, and black, but they have bigger names. And then that goes into the fundamental innate mind of clear light, right? okay. So um, at the time we're born, yeah, the um, the as a human being that subtlest mind when enters the fertilized egg, okay? It resides at the heart chakra, but once our our grosser senses start uh, coming about, that subtlest mind just is dormant because our our grosser consciousnesses take over, okay? But at the time of death, what happens is the body loses the uh, ability to sustain consciousness, so the grosser consciousnesses dissolve or absorb uh, gradually into something more and more subtle and refined, and then eventually into the uh, both the consciousnesses and the winds absorb into the um, that subtlest mind wind. Okay, and then when that leaves the body, yeah, the last moment in the body is the moment of death. When it leaves the body, then it's going into the next life. Okay, so, yeah, so that, that is extremely subtle wind mind becomes manifest either at the time of death or through special yogic practices. And the trick in Tantra, one of the things that makes Tantra very profound, is to be able to make that mind manifest and then have it realize emptiness. Because it's such a subtle mind, if that consciousness realizes emptiness, then as the grosser consciousnesses emerge from that, you know, in terms of... They do with bodhisattvas, not with Buddhas. But um, as they emerge from that, then they, they have the impact of uh, emptiness being seen by that extremely subtle mind. Okay. So from the perspective of highest yoga tantra, although the coarse mind and uh, coarse body are different substances with different continuums, at the subtlest level of mind and form, they are one nature, the subtlest mind win. Okay, so our current body, our current mind, different natures. Now, when we die, body has its continuum, mind has its continuum, and they say bye bye to each other. Yeah, but this subtlest mind win is always together, they're one nature, so they, um, yeah, they don't exist apart from each other. So the Kala Chakra Tantra uh, speaks of the connection between the elements in our bodies and those in the external world and the analogous relationship between the movement of the celestial bodies in the universe and changes within our own bodies. Okay, so Kala Chakra presents a whole, if you like analogies and things like this, this is really the practice for you because there's analogies between the very subtle winds and between the the subtler winds in the body and then the gross winds in the body and then the external elements. Yeah, so there's, there's analogies that are, uh, or there's, these are all connected. Okay, so if you want to learn more about that, then I would say look in one of the books in our library about Kala Chakra. I don't, I can't recommend which one, but certainly one of them at some point will uh, talk about this in, I don't know how much depth, because uh, it really all of that is really only concerns people who are, you know, very high yogis yeah, who need to to know that. Um, or check Alex uh, Burson's website because he he may have something about that too. So since our body and mind are related, these changes in the external and internal elements affect the mind. Yeah, what's happened in the external world affects the internal elements and the mind, because the internal elements are related to the mind. And similarly, what happens in our mind affects the elements in the body and has some effect outside. So anybody who has taught elementary school knows this, Yeah, that on windy days, the wind is blowing outside, and how are the children? Venerable ho-ho, would you like to describe teaching elementary school on a, a windy day? Oh, you trust me to do it? The kids are bonkers, okay? They are running here and running there and screaming and it's like inside, their bodies are being blown around by the wind. And their minds are blowing around by the wind. And to get them to sit down and concentrate on a lesson, extremely difficult. Okay. And so it's, it's like so obvious to any teacher. You know, um, because you have to endure it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 30 kids screaming. Yeah. And they they can't go outside because it's usually windy and rainy, so the whole day is inside. Any of you remember that in grammar school? Yeah? No, you were too busy running around screaming. <laughs> we all were. <laughs> okay. And, you know, I mean, we can see that uh, in certain environments, you know, being in a dry environment affects the mind, being in a wet environment affects the mind. We can also see that what's going on in our mind will affect our physical health. Yeah, when our mind is very stressed, our physical health tends to decline too. So, you know, there's all these relationships here. And I think the relationships all this happens, that the winds are the key element in this linking of uh, the mind with the gross body and with the environment. Since our body and mind are related, these changes in the external and internal elements affect the mind. Conversely, the mind, especially its intentions, which are karma, influences our bodily elements and by extension the elements in the larger universe. That would be a fascinating thing to experiment about, yeah? How your mind and motivations and so on, not only how they affect the body, but how they affect the external world too. Now, I think it would take a whole lot of beings, uh, you know, for them to bring about a significant change in the external world. Uh, It's not just one person. So the Kala Chakra Tantra explains that when a world system is dormant, so that's remember when the world systems, they dissolve and they have this dormant period, only space particles which bear traces of the other four elements are present. These elemental particles are more like attributes than distinct material substances. The material things in our environment are composed of these elements in varying degrees. As part of composite objects, such as our bodies or the table, our bodies are a good example of this. The earth element provides solidity. So what in your body do you think has a predominance of of earth element? Bones, Bones. okay. The water element, uh, you know, provides fluidity and also uh, cohesion. What's that gonna be in your body? Yeah, blood, lymph, phlegm, pee, yeah, the fire element gives heat, what's that, yeah, the whole digestive process, yeah, and, and especially the digestive system, because it heats things to, to digest it, yeah, but then the, the burning of, uh, uh, you know, the, what the food that we've eaten, that provides the heat as well. And the wind element enables movement, yeah, like blinking your eyes, opening your mouth. Yeah, respiration. So the elements develop progressively in both the universe and our bodies. So first there's space, then wind, then fire, water, and earth, sequentially. Those of you who do the Yamantaka uh, self-generation will recognize this. At the time of a human being's death, the elements absorb. They lose their power to support consciousness in the reverse sequence. sequence. So first, the uh, earth element dissolves and it's hard to move the body. Yeah, body feels heavy. And you have a vision at that time of water, of like a mirage, because the earth element is weakening, so the water element becomes prominent. Yeah, you see like an internal appearance of a mirage. And then, uh, so that was the first the earth element, then the fire element, Yeah, the, uh, the fire element dissolves. Oh yeah, okay. So, yeah, so the water element then dissolves and you get the appearance of smoke because mm-hmm. the, ele- uh, the fire element is dominant. Then the fire element dissolves and you get the appearance of like little uh, fireflies. And then that appearance, the wind appearance dissolves, and you get an appearance of like a very dim light at the end of a tunnel. And in each thing, each dissolution corresponds with uh, one of the aggregates that is losing power, one of the sense senses that is losing power, and so on. So you really see how the whole body-mind conflict complex is just totally collapsing at at death. And it all dissolves into this extremely subtle uh, mind wind, yeah, mind wind. Okay. Okay, similarly, uh, When a world system collapses, so that that was the previous verse, was the body dissolving. Here's the world system collapsing. When it collapses and comes to an end, the elements composing it uh, absorb into each other in this reverse sequence. Uh, Earth absorbs into water, water into fire, fire into wind, (coughs) and wind into space. (coughs) unobservable by our physical senses and lacking mass, the space particles are the fundamental source of all matter persisting during the dormant stage between one world system and the next and acting as the substantial cause for the coarser elements that arise during the evolution of the next world system.
1: In the paragraph right above, it said, these elemental particles are more like attributes than distinct mm-hmm. material substances. What are attributes hmm. here?
0: Hardness for earth, fluidity and cohesion for water, heat for fire, movement for wind.
1: It's like their properties, I guess, like how they're ex- experienced by a living being.
0: Yeah, they're, well, they're attributes. They're attributes. They cause different, you know, like different qualities. You know, hardness is a quality. Cohesion is a quality. They're trying to get us away from the idea of, you know, here's a little water particle, yeah, and here's a little fire particle. But fire, how is fire a particle? Yeah, okay, so it's trying to get away from that into uh, kind of their qualities and how they function. So space particles are not like the partless particles asserted by non-Buddhist schools that assert ultimate, partless, and unchanging building blocks out of which everything is constructed. Which Buddhist schools talk about that? fibosicas, and yeah. So So, uh, nor are space car- particles uh, yeah, inherently existent particles, or any of them, you know, they're not inherently existent particles. In fact, sometimes when they talk about a particle of earth they'll say it actually has attributes of all the other particles too in that one particle okay but the earth has to, uh, is dominant so it's called an earth particle okay don't ask me how that happens so the space particles exist by being merely designated independence on the potency for the other four elements so they're called space particles because they bear the potency for the other four elements you know and they carry that potency from the dissolution of one universe or one world system into the evolution of another world system the external five elements are related to the corresponding inner five elements that constitute the body. These, in turn, are related to the subtlest wind that is one nature with the subtlest mind. So that's interesting to think about, you know, earth element on the outside relating to earth element on the inside. You know, you sometimes feel, but they're they're two different things, you know, how are they related? When you eat food what are you doing you're taking you know the the earth water fire uh, and wind elements from outside and putting them inside your body and they become part of your body yeah and when you pee and poo you know internal uh, elements are going outside and going back into the external environment so there's you know some go- give and take there so the subtlest of uh, mind and wind is endowed with a five-colored radiance. That is the nature of the five Dhyani Buddhas, and the five wisdoms. So these things are there's correlations for all of them between the elements, the Dhyani Buddhas, the uh, this five-colored radiance, the five wisdoms, the uh, aggregates. All these things you can make a whole chart, yeah, about it. In this way, there is correspondence between the external world and the innermost subtlest mind of sentient beings. Interesting to think about, isn't it? That there's some relationship, because we usually think, you know, here is here, and it's totally its own uh, uh, objective, Uh, self-isolated system, and out there you have all those other elements, and they have their own thing, and there's no connection between the two. That's how we ordinarily feel, yeah, but this is saying, actually, there's some correspondence going on here. The five subtle elements in the body evolve primarily from the subtlest wind, that is the the wind part of the subtlest mind wind, of that sentient being. The five subtle elements in turn bring forth the five coarse elements in the body and the five coarse elements in the external world. Thus, from a tantric perspective, all things evolve from and dissolve back into this inseparable union of the subtlest mind and wind, the subtlest uh, mind wind of each individual is not a soul, nor does it abide independent of all other factors. So don't see it as a, you know. Okay, I found God. It's the, <laughs> the subtlest mind wind. You know, this is the essence of me and the essence of the universe, and it's God and. No, there's no inherently existent anything here. Okay. The relationship between the mind, the five, the inner five elements, and the five elements in the external universe is complex. Only highly realized tantric yogis are privy to a full understanding of this. Okay. The karma of sentient beings who will be born in that universe, are the, co- the, yeah, those karmas, are the cooperative conditions for that universe. Okay, so your, your um, substantial cause is going to be the five elements, and then the karma is going to be one of the cooperative conditions, not the only one, but one of them. When their karmic latencies begin to ripen, when sentient beings' karmic latencies begin to ripen, the space particles are activated and they give rise to the wind element, the motion of pure energy. Fire, water, and earth elements sequentially and gradually arise after that. I believe that the evolution from space particles into the manifold phenomena of a universe, and those phenomena's devolution into space particles at the end of a universe, could be related to the Big Bang theory. However, I don't think that there was uh, one space particle in the center that exploded to produce everything. With further investigation, perhaps a correlation could be made between space particles and some theories of physics and astronomy. Okay, this is your job. (laughs) Or was your job? (laughs) So the elements of an individual's body are related to his or her personal karma and the subtlest mind wind. The larger external universe is the environmental effect of the collective karma of sentient beings who enjoy it. Okay, So that refers to what I was talking about at the beginning, the environmental effect of of different actions. And the collective karma, so if there's a certain group of sentient beings who've created similar karma to, ha- to be born in a universe with particular attributes, then their karma comes together and helps influence the uh, physical elements, and then they get born in, in that place. The larger external world is the environmental effect of the collective karma of the sentient beings who enjoy it. The collective karma of the sentient beings who dwell in a universe influence the way the coarse elements evolve to form that universe. In other words, the universe and the sentient beings exist in dependence on each other. And then, you know, when you think about that, and then you think about Uh, mandalas with the different deities in the mandalas and you think about pure lands and the kind of beings born in those pure lands then you see that there's some correlation between the environment and the the minds and karma of the different beings or the mental states of those different beings that live in those different environments you know and you can understand then how somebody who has a very, very uncontrolled mind, it's going to be difficult for them to get born in in a pure land. Because their their mind is not matching at all the kind of attributes of, the physical attributes of the pure land, or the attributes of the, the minds of the other beings born in that pure land. And the same would go for the hell realms. In other words, the universe and sentient beings exist in dependence on each other. Sentient beings cannot exist without the environment in which they live. And the environment cannot exist without the sentient beings whose karma played a role in its creation. But when we look at the external world, we feel like the people are very independent from it. And like the environment can exist without the sentient beings whose karma played a role in its creation. Yeah. Seems that way, doesn't it? I mean, I die and this whole world continues. It's not like everything ceases because I do. But there's still some relationship going on. The relationship between the mind and the subtlest elements is the domain of highly realized meditators with single-pointed concentration. According to scriptural sources and the experience of highly realized yogis, someone who has subdued his or her mind and developed a certain level of control over his or her inner elements can also control the external elements this accounts for the stories we hear of people who can walk on water fly in the sky without boarding a plane and travel beneath the earth okay so if you can control your mind then you begin to develop the ability to control the elements and that happens uh, through attaining the, uh, the different levels of jhana, and uh, gaining the, the uh, super-knowledges, okay? And then the next section is the laws of nature and the law of karma and its effects. So the laws of nature and the law of karma and its effects operate in their own domain although they intersect at key times, okay? So we just got done talking about how things were related and now we're hearing that karma and physical laws operate in their own domain, but they do interact and and connect in certain ways, okay? So not everything in sentient beings' lives and environments can be reduced to the functioning of either natural laws or karma. So you can't say scientific laws explain, for example, why I am born in this body, in this realm, and not as some other sentient being in another realm. Okay, Physical laws can explain a lot of things, but they can't explain that. Karmic laws can explain that, but karmic laws uh, you know, can't explain why uh, things fall down instead of up. The law of gravity explains that. Natural laws function such that once particular processes are set in motion, they will produce certain effects. Karma enters the picture when sentient beings' intentions and their happiness and suffering are involved. Okay, so there's some physical evolution of the universe that depends on all the physical laws, yeah. but not everything in the natural universe depends on karma, but karma will influence at certain points. Okay. So for the most part, the natural laws of physics, chemistry, and biology that guide the interactions of the external elements are involved in the development of our world system. However, Sentient beings' minds through the ripening of other uh, karma seem to exert influence at two points. The first is when the karma of the sentient beings who have the potential to live in a particular world system sparks the initial development of that world system. From the perspective of the scientific model, the collective karma of a huge number of sentient beings could influence the occurrence of the Big Bang. Okay, you'd have to have really a lot of sentient beings. yeah. From the perspective of the model presented in the Kalachakra Tantra, the collective karma of all those sentient beings would stimulate the potencies of solidity, fluidity, heat, and motility existing in the space particles in between the world systems so that from them coarse elements would now appear forming the external environment. Mm -hmm. So I think what's interesting how His Holiness is presenting this in terms of, there's well, there's different models And there's, you know, you can look at one thing and you can explain it according to this model and you can explain it according to that model. And the models are really, really different. Yeah, But there may be a way to see, you know, be able to to see some common things going on, okay? So when he meets with uh, astronomers, astronomers, yeah. Um, then they talk about that kind of thing, and you know, he meets with physicists, and they talk about that. Okay. So the second point at which karma could play come into play is when the elements of a universe have evolved to the point where they can support sentient life. Okay. Now, here, you know, when we think of science, they talk about just the physical world uh, getting born. And then somehow there's some magic that happens. And, you know, some, I don't know, we don't know if it's a one-cell creature, probably not, or what kind of creature, but boing, the consciousness comes in. Okay, and the scientists say, It is an emergent property of the body, which I do not understand what that means. But somehow you go from, you know, elements in the environment to those elements having sentient life, you know, being connected with minds. So when that is about to happen, karma could act as the instigating factor for previous inanimate forms to become the bodies of sentient beings. That is, mind streams could enter those forms to produce sentient beings with bodies and minds. The evolution of various species would subsequently occur. Okay, so interesting thing to think about. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, sometimes, some of the, uh, the scientists, and especially the tech people, uh, they'll say, well, how about a computer? Can it become a sentient being? So, you know, all this thing of, of artificial intelligence, and, I mean, creating artificial intelli- intelligence depends on human beings inputting a lot of data that make things happen. That doesn't mean that the computer is thinking It means that there's just certain computer processes that are going on. But His Holiness said, if at some point somebody's karma is such that their mind is attracted to a a computer as a body, and if that computer has the requisite physical things that could support a consciousness, then it's possible for a mind to take rebirth in the body of a computer, and that would be a sentient being. Yeah, and we kind of roll our eyes, but I guess if you, you know, look at amoebas, and you know, can you imagine a, a mind stream going in there? And you know, we don't even know if amoebas are are sentient or not. Yeah. But even one cell bacteria, the common agreement is they're not sentient, but at some point, you know, they could support somebody. Yeah. I, I sometimes wonder, people who become experts in different scientific fields, if they get born as those things that they investigate. Yeah? So maybe, you know, the tech people are going to be born as computers, you know. (laughs) And then you have this computer saying, oh, I was Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg, Zucker, 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 Zuckerberg, Zucker, 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 Zuckerberg. Okay. What's his first name? Mark. I was Mark Zuckerberg. In my previous life, and the other computers go, Really? Well, I was Bill Gates in my previous (laughs) life. Another one says, But I was Steve Jobs. And another one says, Yeah. So uh, who knows? Yeah. That would be interesting. And then all the computers are jealous of each other, trying to churn out more and more whatever they churn out when they're sentient beings. (laughs) Okay, so another way to describe this process is in terms of substantial causes and cooperative conditions. Both are necessary when we speak of natural laws or karmic law. A substantial cause is what actually transforms into the result. Cooperative conditions are the causes that assist this process. For example, wood is the substantial cause of of a table, and the people who built it, as well as the nails that hold it together, are the cooperative conditions. And then uh, you have the paint and the, you know, all these other things too. Because everything that is produced must have previous causes that are concordant with it, I believe that the continuum of material existed before the Big Bang, okay? Because if the Big Bang was dense material, where did all that dense material come from? It needed a cause, yeah, which had to be other kinds of physical material. It wasn't that the Big Bang uh, came out of nowhere. (laughs) There were uh, substantial causes and cooperative causes. So this material that was the substantial cause of the world system that developed after the Big Bang Okay, and similarly in the Kalachakra Tantra, space particles existed before the formation of our world system. They were the substantial cause for all the material in this world system. Regardless of which model we accept, the karma of the sentient beings who will be born in that world system act as the cooperative condition for these material elements to appear coalesce and form a world system. Karma could similarly enable them to become the basis for sentient life. Yeah. So, uh, have you ever wondered, you know, I mean, why do human bodies look the way they look? Uh, why don't they, why don't we have, you know, f- five eyes or you know, mothers are always saying they want a few extra arms. Yeah. So why don't, why don't we have more arms? Why, why do we have legs instead of some kind of motor-operated, you know, skateboards as, as the lower part of our body? Okay? Uh, you know, why do human bodies look the way they do? That has to do with the karma of the people who were going to be born in these kinds of bodies. So I find that interesting to think about because usually when we think of human beings, again, our mind is quite rigid. This is what human beings look like and there was never any choice. They always looked like this. They're always going to look like this. And well, okay, maybe they came from a few apes, but the apes actually look like us. Yeah, we don't look like the apes, but the apes look like us. Yeah. Huh? Yeah, have you ever looked at the the photographs of orangutans more than other apes, the orangutans, you know? I look at the photos, I feel like, you know, I should be able to talk to that sentient being. Yeah, just the look in their eyes and so on. Mm-hmm. So to use an analogy, um, oh no, I didn't read all of that, okay, sorry. So uh, now the next uh, section is karma and our present environment. To review, there is a connection between the formation and evolution of the external world and the karma of sentient beings who will inhabit it. There is also a connection between the elements of the external world and those constituting our physical body. These, in turn, are related to subtler elements and subtler winds that themselves can be traced to the subtlest mind wind. Karma, which primarily refers to sentient beings' intentions and the paths of actions they motivate, May be the link between the sentient beings' minds and the external world, yeah, and this is where, where I think the link is. You know, from karma going into the the uh, the subtle energy. Because yeah. they talk, you'll hear sometimes in scriptures about the winds of karma, the winds of karma blowing us here and there. It's not the external world. The wind that you know. Oh, I'm going to blow you to Baltimore. It's it's, it's not like that. It's, you know are the the karma is somehow connected with the wind, and then that when the karma ripens, then that can influence the external world. And um, I mean, you can feel that. It would, when you're sensitive to your body you know you can feel when your wind is all like nutty and you can't concentrate yeah we've all had that experience right you know you just wake up and like I can't concentrate and I'm restless and I or I woke up and I'm in a bad mood and I'm lethargic and I think you know there you have some relationship between the mind and the karma, and the the subtle winds—not the subtlest, but the subtle winds in the body. Yeah. Because when you're in a bad mood, physically you feel different, don't you? Yeah, your body is lethargic. It's, you know, your body doesn't feel right. Yeah. Uh, when you're in a good mood, then your body usually feels a bit lighter yeah you can move better. so there's something between the mental states, the karma that's ripening, yes. uh, the winds and and you can also see that as you um, like with the breathing meditation, when you slow uh, when you watch which uh, breathing patterns go with which emotions in your mind? Very interesting. Yeah? And when you're breathing, you know, short breaths from up here, you're usually tense and stressed. If you can slow your breath down, yeah, and kind of lower the breath, get it into your belly area, your mind becomes calmer. Yeah? some kind of relationship there. And they they also say, and I've experimented with this a bit in the past, is when when you're trying to communicate with somebody, if you can match their breathing pattern at a particular time, it enables you to to have more empathy and for them to, to feel that empathy. Because you're breathing like at the same time in the same pattern. So people may not consciously notice that, but um, you know that may be going on. It's like when you walk, have you ever noticed if you walk in step with somebody else, it feels different than if you know they're walking da 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 and you're walking slower or vice versa? Yeah, it influences these things. Karma, which primarily refers to sentient beings' intentions and the paths of actions they motivate, may be the link between sentient beings' minds and the external world. Karma is related to the subtle winds in sentient beings' bodies, which in turn are related to the five inner elements. These correspond to the five external elements in the environment. Understanding the subtle winds spoken of in tantric texts will help us understand this relationship. This is my opinion. More research is necessary, says His Holiness. This is why if you uh, do yoga or tai chi and so on, you feel mentally different after you've done a system of things. You know, if you do some exercises that work with the the winds in the body, it affects the mind. Of course, if you're very concerned with how your yoga outfit looks, and if it's the, the right color that really shows your figure, and if it's better than your friend's yoga uh, outfit, or if it looks too much like a ballet um, uh, leotard that you wore when you were six years old, uh, if you're thinking about that, then then that's something else. Okay, but you can see, let me do that. As mentioned before, only a Buddha can know the intricacies of karma, which include how karma affects the evolution of a world system and the sentient life in it. For us limited beings, it is hard to know where natural laws stop, stop and the law of karma takes over, where the law of karma stops and the natural laws take over and where the two influence each other. For that reason, we should avoid making hard and fast distinctions regarding the interface of these two. Nevertheless, sub-guidelines can be discerned. So in terms of the origin and development of a particular world system, there are two times when sentient beings' karma may influence, exert an influence at the very beginning of that world system where the coarse elements are arising and later when the combination of those elements are suitable to act as the bodies of sentient beings. Okay, so he's reviewing here. In terms of the development of specific environments and climates, in which sentient beings now live, karma could play a role in two ways. First, the karma of the people presently living in and experiencing a place, for example, Dharamsala, where I live, contributed to its development millions of years ago when it was forming. So that's the first way he was talking about it, okay? Only nowadays in this lifetime do those people experience the effect. Their karma helped the environment in Dharamsala develop the way it did. But they weren't born there until this lifetime, so it took a long time for them to actually experience the effects, although their karma was at work helping to create that environment. So we may wonder... How could their karma have ripened so long ago before they were born here? An analogy is helpful. So before moving into a house, the future occupants design the floor plan and begin constructing it. Okay, With the Buddha hall, we've spent how many years working on the floor plan and haven't set one single thing that to start the construction, but years doing the planning. Okay. So that's like, uh, you know, you have the materials there, but then that karma is, you know, going to to affect it too. Later, when the house is ready, yeah, those people occupy it and experience that environment. So it's Like you build a house, you start planning it, but you don't experience the result of living in it until later when you move in. So your karma can ripen at the beginning of a universe or a world system when it's starting to evolve, but you won't experience that result until you actually later get born in that environment. Similarly, when this planet was forming, no sentient beings lived on it. But since there were sentient beings who would take rebirth here, their karma influenced the way the, planets would evol- the planet would evolve. Okay. And so this goes back to a question people very often ask, is, uh, you know, oh, how come the population is increasing in this world? And they're asking that from the perspective of thinking that there's only sentient life on this planet. And when you think, I mean, this universe is enormous. There's all kinds of sentient life out there. It's in different forms because the karma of those sentient beings, you know, creates different looking bodies. I remember when they talk about uh, the... Um, you know, Mount Meru and the Four Continents, there is some description of what beings in the different continents look like, the color of their skin, and some have square heads and, you know, things like that. So all that's gonna, you know, the influence of the karma and the elements. Okay, second, a particular environment is influenced by the karma of the people who live in that place now but were not among the initial karmic contributors to the development of that climate a long time ago. So these sentient beings later accumulated karma that was similar to the karma of the initial karmic contributors, and thus came to live in that place and experience that climate at this time. So not all the People who live in a place uh, created the karma for that environment to become what it is um, at the same time. And their karma was not always the karma that ripened at the beginning of that world system. It could come along later. For example, after Dharamsala's specific climate had already come into existence, Another group of people accumulated the karma that could produce this sort of climate. This group did not have a direct connection to the development of Dharamsala's climate thousands of years ago, but due to their actions, which were similar to the karma of the previous group of people, they came to live in this place. Hmm. The karma of the first group actually contributed to the development of Dharamsala's climate and environment. The karma of the second group did not contribute directly, but participated in it since they live here. Both groups of people created the causes to experience that environment, but in different ways. So if you understood karma, your definition of indigenous inhabitants would change because it would correspond to when that karma was created and when it it ripened. To use an analogy, many people start a business in Europe. Another person in the same field intends to seek employment in the United States. However, she happens to be in Europe and takes a job at the company established by the other people. Although she joins it later, she still contributes to the company's work. So that's like, you know, the people who founded the company are like the people at the beginning whose karma influenced the development of the universe. And then this person who was. In the United States, somewhere else, she was in another rebirth, yeah, but then she came to work in this climate, so she had created somehow the karma to come later to live in that same place, or to take a job in that, in that company. Mm-hmm. Karma was not the only cause for Dharamsala's climate to develop the way it did. The laws of inorganic physical causality were definitely involved. Nature has a certain autonomy that does not depend on karma. The tree we see over there grew from its seed. I doubt anyone's karma was involved in that. Similarly, the leaves, uh, the growth of some leaves today and others next week is due to the functioning of biological systems, not karma. Because yeah. some people get really, you know, about this thing of the mind creates the universe. They think everything that happens is due to karma, and there's no other reasons. And Holiness and is saying, no, there's lots of other causal systems working. But this tree is in front of me, and I can use an enjoyment and enjoy it as soon as the tree is related to a sentient being and his or her happiness or suffering the karma of that particular sentient being enters the picture yeah when something in the environment could cause help or harm to that sentient being okay then that sentient being's <laughs> karma is is involved Beautiful plants and colorful flowers grow in the ground where I live. They certainly are related to the karma of the sentient beings who use and enjoy them and who experience pleasure and pain in relation to them. Human beings enjoy their beautiful colors and smell. Bees imbibe nectar from the flowers. Birds use the trees as their shelter. Insects munch on plants. The collective karma of all these beings contributed to the existence of these plants. Their karma was created by the minds of the sentient beings involved. Nevertheless, since the plants consist of material substances, their growth depends on nature's biological laws. Karma does not transform into the water and fertilizer that makes the plants grow. Okay. Natural disasters, such as earthquakes, hurricanes, and tsunamis are produced by the functioning of the laws of nature. Our karma does not make them happen. So all that thing with the tsunamis and the horrible number of deaths that that followed years ago. Yeah, karma did not create the tsunami. Karma did influence why certain people were there sunbathing on the beach when the tsunami struck. Okay. However, the fact that certain people are there when such events happen is due to their karma. A volcano explodes due to physical factors such as the buildup of pressure under the Earth's surface. This is not the result of karma, but the fact that some sentient beings are near that volcano and are injured or even die as a result of its explosion is related to the karma of those sentient beings. Other sentient beings who did not create the karma to be harmed in that way are not near the volcanic explosion. Mm -hmm. Similarly, droughts and floods can be understood in terms of external causes, but insofar as they affect sentient beings, those sentient beings' karma is involved. For example, a community of people that has intense and pervasive hatred may, in this or future lives, inhabit a place during a severe drought and famine. Their being present and experiencing suffering from this are effects of their karma. Similarly, the people who consciously pollute the environment now create the karmic cause to suffer from living in a polluted environment in future lives. That makes a whole lot of sense. Although we often speak of karma as actions created in previous lives, It also refers to the actions we do today. Our present motivations and choices directly affect the external world. This is true, isn't it? Uh, We must not think that everything is due to our actions in previous lives and ignore the effects of our present actions. When we dump toxic waste into our environment, we experience the result in this lifetime. When we do not share resources, the world becomes turbulent now. Our intentions and actions during this lifetime are causing global warming. I'm wondering in some of these texts um, if it's described how when we think about sentient beings, for instance, being on these other continents or other world
1: systems, how would we distinguish between who's in the human realm and the animal realm? Because on this planet, I know that we're humans and the cats are animals.
0: Mm -hmm. But, like, you were mentioning that the beings on the continents look really different. Is Mm -hmm. it said if they're in the human realm or in the animal realm? Um, I know some of them are human realm. There could be animal realm. There could be all sorts of, you know, I'm sure that there's... um, pretas living on this earth, but we can't see them. Maybe in some other world systems you can see the pretas. Yeah. Not because the pretas have changed, but because these sense faculties of the human beings are capable of seeing them.
1: So, uh, earlier I was saying that in um, Tantra, it said that the subtlest level of mind and form are one nature. Mm-hmm. Could this be um, compared to the Chittamatran assertion that the object and subject arise from the same source.
0: No, no. just because two things are one nature, that doesn't mean that, that they're similar.
1: Is the Jonang Kalachakra different from the Kalachakra taught by His Holiness the Dalai Lama, generally speaking? And can, we, can we can we study either, or are there important differences
0: to be aware of? What's the, what was the first color Chakra? Jonang color Jonang. Chakra. SK, do you know the answer to that? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's another school. I don't know how similar or different it is to the, to the one that His Holiness gives.
1: Mm-hmm having difficulty with the concept of karma, number one being due to the fact that it's intangible. Even so, I'm not sure how to conceive of it in the form of deposits put on the mind stream.
0: Okay. Karma just means actions. So, you, you know, you're acting all day long. You're creating karma all day long. It could be mental actions, the kinds of things you ruminate about, verbal actions, what you speech. Physical actions, you know, walking or, you know, what things you do physically. So these are creating uh, karma. Um, yeah, when we talk about the latencies or the, the seeds of karma, it's true, we can't describe them. But, you know, there's many things in our world that exist that, we, that are not physical and that it's hard, you know, how do we say they exist? Like if I say love, yeah, well what is love? Is it something physical? How do you know when you love somebody? Yeah, do you have to have some physical evidence of love? Yeah. No, it's just, it's, there's many things that exist that, that uh, are not physical in nature that we can't see.
1: Mm-hmm. That question, um, like if I'm murdered, for example, wouldn't it be because of the person who killed me, what role would karma play in that?
0: Okay, you would be experiencing the result of previous actions, and because, uh, you know, dying is considered an unpleasant result, it would probably be the result of harming some other sentient being, the person who was beating you up or whatever they were doing, they would be creating karma that would ripen in some kind of uh, unpleasant result happening to them in the future. Yeah. We need to go go back to to uh, uh, Foundation of Buddhist Practices. At the end there's several chapters about karma and that will, will help a lot to uh, to understand it.